Welcome to the Space Store podcast. You're listening to season one of the Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of season one, episode five, Exploring Alien Worlds with astrophysicist and astronomer, Dr. Chris Pearson. We discuss the incredible growth and journey within the exoplanetary discovery outside of our solar system, how the ESA aerial mission seeks to expand search into the universe, and the diverse menagerie of weird and wonderful planets out there, from Jupiter-sized worlds orbiting ridiculously close to their parent stars, to worlds made of ice, lava, and even diamond. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of seasons 1, 2, and 3 on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. So as I'm going to explain in the talk, exoplanets are planets that exist outside our solar system. So they're alien worlds, really. And exoplanets are probably you know, the biggest fashion now in, in, in astronomy. Um, it's, it's really taken off over the past 10 years or so. And, and um, uh, there, there's loads of space missions being launched, loads of telescopes on the ground looking, hunting, searching for these alien worlds. And it's kind of like the place to be really at the moment in astronomy. So I'm going to take you on a tour around the history of exoplanets and then a little bit about the future, what we're going to do to um, find out more about these strange alien worlds. Awesome. And I think um, something that you're currently working on the square kilometre array, um, yeah. part of that's going to enable finding these aliens out there, isn't it? Tell, Some tell, of it tell is, us, yeah. yeah. Um, do, you want, do you want to tell us about what the square kilometre array is in a yeah. couple of sentences? <laughs> okay, so the, the square kilometre array is an absolutely gigantic telescope. In fact, it's not just one telescope, it's actually um it, it's a radio telescope which means it's very much like either your sky tv dish or your tv aerial for those who can remember tv aerials and you can imagine thousands of these all bunched together so many that instead of being like 30 centimeters across like your sky dishes um in fact you've got 30 centimeter dishes filling up an area of one square kilometer so we're trying to synthesize trying to simulate a an equivalent telescope that's one kilometer wide which you know if, if you think the biggest telescopes on at the moment on on the earth are like 10 meters or so this is going to be like a one kilometer wide telescope so it's the biggest science project ever tried <laughs> by humankind i say try because it's not built yet it's being built as we speak yeah so it's going to uh, happen next decade Extremely exciting. Um, another very warm welcome to everyone joining us on YouTube. Hi guys. Um, and let's see who else has joined us. Craig, hi Helen, Russell, thanks for said hello. But what we're gonna do now is I'm gonna let Chris take it away um, and hope you guys enjoy the talk. Okay, great. So hope everyone can see my screen. Um, so I'm going to talk to you today about um, aerial and alien worlds, and I'll describe what um, aerial is uh, as we go through the talk. Okay, so it's, it, there, it's going to be quite a, a, a whirlwind tour, really. Um, I hope you know, everyone um, can understand most of what we're doing, because I'm, I'm going to try and keep it at, at um, a sort of uh, interesting level. 
but sometimes I might get a bit carried away. I apologize for that in advance. Okay, so what we have first of all here, um, I mean, looking back in time, what we call the planets of antiquity. So, you know, when we're, we're talking about things like the, the Greeks and the Romans, basically the planets that we could see in the sky at night. So we had basically Saturn, Venus, Jupiter, Mercury, Mars. So five planets and the moon and the sun. So these were these were what we call what, the seven classical planets, even though the sun's a star and the moon's a moon. Okay. But we call these classical because what this is what we can see in the, with the, our naked eye in the night sky. Okay. So going through time, we then um, discovered more planets um, slowly. So now instead we've got this whole family of planets uh, including uh, um, the, the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And uh, there's also little old Pluto there um, as, as well. Um, that was discovered in 1930. Uh, that was the most recent body to be discovered, really. Um, and I'll come to Pluto in a minute. Uh, of course, Pluto caused various problems. It's no longer a planet. It causes various problems, uh, not just for astronomers, also for composers as well, um, because we had um, Gustav Holtz, the planets here, um, and he didn't cater for Pluto. So he was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like tricked a bit there. Luckily for Holt, for Holst, Pluto in 2006 or so was actually kicked out of the Planet Club. So when I was at school, when you looked at books about planets there were nine planets and that included Pluto 2006 in a big astronomical meeting in the Czech Republic in um, in Prague uh, about 400 astronomers got together and they voted whether to keep Pluto a planet or not um, and this bear this bear in mind this was about 1 20th of the total number of astronomers in the world so about five percent five percent of us decided in the end after three votes to kick Pluto out of the planet club. So Pluto lovers didn't like it. Holst was happy because once again, he had his, uh, he had the right number of planets for his suite. Okay, but when we think about planets and we think about the size of the universe, surely there must be more than just eight planets uh, in, in the universe. When we look up at the night sky, we see hundreds of stars, um, hundreds of galaxies. This is actually a fly-through um, of thousands and thousands of galaxies, not stars, they're galaxies. So every sort of blob here contains um, something like 100 billion stars. So can't tell me that there's no other planets in the universe at all. And for a long time, we, we didn't discover any new planets. Um, in fact, it took us until the 1990s until 1990s, there, we just were living with these you know, nine planets um, in the solar system. Then in 1990, all this changed. And this was um, a very exciting discovery in 1992. Um, suddenly, astronomers discovered three new planets outside our solar system. So these were the first ever planets to be discovered outside the solar system, not going around our sun, but going around a different star. So before we all get excited about aliens here, Unfortunately, this star is not really a star, anything like our sun. This star is what we call a, a, a pulsar. So a pulsar, unfortunately, sends out all this deadly radiation. So it would wipe out any life on these planets. So although it was exciting to discover these three planets, there was no chance at all that these planets looked anything like we have in our 
solar system. So we had to wait a little while longer um, until 1995, where we discovered the first real planet, I say, um, outside our solar system. So the, the, the first planet discovered going around a star like our sun was called 51 Pegasi b. So I have to explain a little bit about how astronomers name planets because astronomers are, you know, they're an imaginative lot. So we have a star, 51 Pegasi, okay? And if we find a planet going around it, we call it after the star, so 51 Pegasi b, okay? With, because we think A is the star itself. So the first planet around 51 Pegasi would be 51 Pegasi b. If we discovered another one, 51 Pegasi c, and then d, and then e. Yeah, I know, not really exciting but um this this discovery really transformed astronomy uh, this is this is the first real planet outside our solar system we call planets outside our, our solar system exoplanets um and in fact although it took a long time after the discovery in 1995 the actual guys who discovered it were finally awarded the nobel prize in physics um, last year. So the, the, the discoverers of this um, this planet 51 Pegasi b were Michael Mayer and Didier Kerlotz, and they were awarded the medal, uh, Nobel, Nobel um, Physics Prize medal last year, along with um, uh, cosmologist Jim Peebles for something completely different. Okay, so, so, that, so let's move on a little bit here. So again, how many of these planets could there possibly be? So, We've got here a picture of our universe. Every dot on the picture is not a star. Every dot is a galaxy. Okay, so you can imagine that every dot on this on this um, on this picture here is in fact um, not just a single object, but it's hundreds and thousands and millions of objects. In fact, this photo contains a hundred thousand dots or galaxies. You can count this in your own time if you want to. Okay, so can we work out how many planets there are in this picture? So first of all, every dot's a galaxy, I said. So each galaxy contains about 100 billion stars, at least. At least 100 billion stars, okay? So then, if we assume that each star has at least one planet around it, okay? Then we have to think, how big is this actual photo? This photo is about 16 moon bit, moons big. Now, a moon is about the size of your thumb on the sky. So this picture here would be equivalent to me moving my thumb about 16 times across the sky. So it's not that bigger bit of sky, really. Okay, so if I, if I assume the sky is about 160,000 thumbs or moons big. So again, you can do this if you want at night time. You can count how many thumbs over the sky it's around 160,000 okay so the sky is about 160,000 moons or thumbs big so then we can work this out so in fact we've got a little sum i know it's late on thursday but we can work out actually the number of planets in the universe here so in fact what we've got is 100,000 galaxies times 100 billion stars times about 10,000 patches of sky that gives us this number of galaxies which I'm told is um, 100 quintillion. So if you learn anything today, you know that, first of all, you've learned the word quintillion probably, but then you know that there's 100 quintillion planets at least in the universe just by our simple bit of maths. So that's a lot of planets, you know. So we're gonna see that um, 
they're all out there. It's just a question of finding them, really. So, in fact, you, you, know, you might think this is a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack here. But in fact, it's, it's, a, it's easier than what you might think. So <clears throat> how can we find these, these um, planets? So the first way to find a planet is if we look around a distant star, as the planet goes around it, it kind of tugs on the star as it goes around. So the planet's got gravity and the star's got gravity. Now, if two things are about the same size, one doesn't go around the other. They almost go around each other. Okay, the reason we all go around the sun is because the sun's so massive. And you can try this, um, for example, if you have something like you know a, a pen or a pencil, and you put two bits of blue tack on the end. You can see if I've got a massive bit of blue tack, my hand my hand would have to be closer to that big bit to actually balance it. Okay, if the bits of blue tack are the same, then I can balance the pen in the middle. Okay? But it's the same with stars and planets. Stars are massive, so we look like we go around them. But in reality, we don't quite go around them. We kind of tug and pull. And what happens really here is as these, as these planets go around, they tug and pull on the star. So the sunlight from the star here reaches us either a little bit earlier if it's tugged towards the planet, or it, the sunlight reaches us a little bit later if it's pushed away from the planet. And we can measure this kind of time delay and if we see this time delay around stars, we can, um, with confidence, say there's probably a planet there. That's one way to find a planet. And there's other ways, though. There's a way called the transit method. Now, if, a, if we're lucky enough that a planet moves in front of a star, what we're going to see is the planet's shadow causes the star to dim a little bit. So down here, I've got a little, um, a little graph here where we've got the light of the star with time. And as the planet moves across the star, the light of the star gets a little bit dimmer. And again, this is a really good way to find a planet because as it moves in front of the star again, we can show this, it's cast its shadow and you're gonna see the light here just dip down as the planet moves across. So we're blocking out some of the sunlight. So this is, this is a tiny effect, right? This is like a, a little fly flying in front of a big searchlight. It's really difficult to detect. To detect but it is detectable. And this is actually one of the best ways to detect new planets these days. Okay, other ways of doing it. Nowadays, we're getting close to actually being able to directly image, to actually take a picture, a photo of a, of a planet going around a star. And we do this by placing a block in front of the star to block out all the starlight and what's left is the little planet. So there's a few planets that have been discovered like that as well. And then there's one more that I'm just gonna talk about very briefly is this gravitational microlensing. So again, this is due to, due to gravity. If you've got a planet going around in space, it can actually bend the light from distant stars around it. And if we see this light bending around a planet, we might be able to detect it. So again, this is, this is really difficult to do. This is a tiny effect, but it has been done. Okay, so um, I'm not gonna show many um, uh, graphs and stuff like this. This is just kind of like showing um, along the bottom, we've got the years of discovery. So starting in the 90s, ending um, last year, and then just all the different bars are showing all the different discovery methods. So what you can see here is in the early days, you've got lots of these red bars here. And these were um, planets that were discovered using this radial velocity, this push and pull of the light as the planet goes around the star. But 
much more than that recently all these green bars have now taken over and these are transits this is when the planet moves in front of the star and the light dips because of the planet's shadow so transits are really the best way now that we're discovering um, new stars and this has really started a big industry of planet finding in the universe and these are all the space missions that are that have either gone or flying now or planned for the future so there's loads of these now and in fact you know we started off with these little small um uh french european space agency run co-op and then we moved through kepler which i'm going to talk about in a minute but then now we've got tess and Cheops and plato and ariel these are four completely new ones that are either just been launched or going to be launched um in the next uh um, five to eight years or so. So it's really, really popular now. I mean, we're building these spacecraft almost as fast as we can to get them into space and try to discover as much as we can about these new um, planets that, um, that are around. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this this one this one uh, satellite called um, Kepler. This is an American satellite. Um, launched in 2009 and went on to about 2018. It stared at one bit of sky. Um, near the constellation of Cygnus, so Cygnus the Swan, which you can see in the sky. And it just basically looked at one patch for ages and stared at all the stars and tried to detect little dips in the starlight as planets moved across it. And the results from Kepler were absolutely amazing. It found all these different objects. So it found things like Earths down here. It found Neptune-type planets it found Jupiter type planets. So suddenly we've gone from like a handful of star of planets that we knew about to thousands. And in fact, uh, again, you can see um, that this is again, one of these little um, bar charts of all the different planets that were discovered by Kepler. We've got Earth-like planets in the blue. So planets like about the same size as the Earth. And then we've got things like Jupiters in the red. So really big gas giants. And then Neptune planets and so more gas giants in the yellow. But then we've got this green block here. And this green block is what we call super Earths. These are planets made of rock, but are maybe you know, one and a half to three times bigger than what our own Earth is. And these super Earths were completely unexpected. Astronomers never expected to find anything like this um, in, in space. This is a completely new kind of planet that was discovered um, by, by Kepler. In fact, so here's, so here's more of an artist's impression of all the different sort of shapes and sizes. And this is what I'm going to go on to talk about, really. There's so many different kinds of, of exoplanets. They come in all different types of shapes and sizes, temperatures, what they're made of, rock or gas. And I'm going to go through some of these in a, in a minute. But before I do that, I just want to show a nice little, um, little movie of, of the planets that Kepler discovered. And it's quite a, quite a cool little movie here. So we can see our solar system in the middle and then we can see all the nearby stars and then all these, these circles are all different planets that have been discovered. The red ones are hot ones, the blue ones are colder ones. The bigger the circle means it's a bigger planet as well. But there's absolutely you know, thousands of these things that have been discovered. I mean, planets are everywhere. They go around probably every single star in the sky has at least one probably more planets going around it. So this is all completely new science now. Okay, so what kind of planets are there? So there's, as I said, 
we've seen some weird and wonderful ones here. Um, in fact, we've seen we've seen planets that are nothing like what we see in our solar system. In our solar system, we've got the rocky planets, Mercury, um, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars closest to the sun. And then about five times the distance from the sun as what the Earth is, we find Jupiter. Now, Jupiter is a massive planet a gas giant. In fact, if you collected all the planets in the solar system together and popped them inside Jupiter, there would still be space to spare inside Jupiter. And you've got Saturn, um, uh, Uranus and Neptune. So those outer planets are made of gas, but they're all tucked on the outside of the solar system. The rocky planets are all tucked on the inside near the sun. But what we find here are these planets called hot Jupiters. And in fact, this is Pegasi 51b, the one I spoke about earlier. It's actually about the size of Jupiter, um, but it's not five times away from its star like our Jupiter is. This, this hot Jupiter is incredibly close to its star. In fact, it's only about um, it's only about three times the dis it's only about three times the actual size of the sun away from its star. It's whizzing around really, really close. In fact, it's so close that the atmosphere of this planet is actually boiling off from the star around it. So it's, um, it's these things, again, were never predicted. We didn't expect to see something the size of Jupiter so close to its parent um, sun. But there's more weird stuff coming as well out of this. There's also planets that have two suns, so double suns in the sky. So this is Kepler-16b, um, and it goes around its star around a um, little over 200 days. So one of, the, one of its years is about 200 days, but there's two stars in the sky. Um, so if you were on this planet, in fact, you would actually have um, two shadows, um, one from each of the suns, which would be quite weird. So we've seen um, what we do find in, in astronomy is, is that often science fiction beats us to our discoveries. So, um, so, so, so those, those of you who are, who are Star Wars fans, you've probably seen this, this kind of thing before. And in fact, astronomers kind of, we, we call this name, we call this, this um, planet Kepler-16b, but a lot of astronomers actually call it Tatooine because it's very much like the um, um, Luke's homeworld in, in Star Wars, where you have two stars in the sky. So you know, science fiction was predicting this before we started discovering these things. What it didn't predict, though, was um, something like 55 Cancri E. This is another star. Um, and 55 Cancri E might be um, what we call a super Earth. It's about two times the size of the Earth. So it's one of these new type of planets. But the interesting thing about this planet is that it's probably made of carbon. Now, those of you, a lot of you probably know that if you take carbon and you press it together under massive pressure, what happens is that carbon would eventually turn into diamond. So this planet probably, although the surface may be carbon, probably at the middle, it, it could be possibly made of diamonds and some of this diamond might even come to the surface. So you could imagine if you could jet off to this star in your spacecraft with your bucket and spade, you could scoop up some of the diamonds on the surface, bring them back. You'd be, you know, you'd be quite rich. In fact, um, astronomers have made some estimates on these sorts of planets, and they and and we think that 55 Cancri E, this particular planet, if you went there and you know put it under your arm, took the whole planet home, it's about 380 quadrillion times the Earth's gross domestic product. So you know, it's like um, um, you you'd be you'd be set for life. Money wouldn't be a problem if you if you could um, get yourself to 55 Cancri E. OK, so um, moving on, there's some other weird and wonderful planets. Um, so again, 
as I said, astronomers, not particularly the most imaginative bunch. Um, we see this, this planet here. This is a, um, this is a huge gas giant, um, uh, bigger than the size of Jupiter, HD 1897.33b. Okay, so the star it goes around is HD 1897.33, and it's the first planet around it, so we call it B. So not a great name. Huge planet, orbits very close to its star again. And in fact, the, sur the, the surface is probably over a thousand degrees Celsius. It's so hot that probably um, what we're seeing here, instead of um, raining liquid, it's probably actually been raining glass in this planet. Um, so not a nice planet to go to, perhaps. And we know this, this is an artist's impression. It's not, it's not the real planet picture, obviously, but because um, we've observed this planet so much as it passes in front of its star, we've got a good idea that it's probably a very deep sort of um, azure blue color, um, in fact. So it's probably a very beautiful planet um, to, to see from a distance, but not a nice place to, um, to go to. Other, uh, other planets we found, lava worlds. So planets, again, about the size of the Earth, rocky planets, but they're so close to their stars that almost the entire surface melts. So there's almost no solid surface on these planets. It's all molten rock. This one here is a planet called Carrot 7b. Um, again, one, one interesting thing about these worlds is that if you've got a big sun, a star, and a planet close to it, um, both of these things are rotating. They've both got days. So the Earth rotates, you know, 24 hours one day. But if you're close enough to your sun, you can actually become what we call tidally locked. And that means that the same side of the planet always faces the sun. So one side of the planet's very hot and one side's very cold. So in fact, on this particular planet, you might actually have the situation where one side is um, molten lava and the other side is actually rock. So you could probably build your house maybe right on that sort of edge. and You might just get away with it without being burnt to a crisp. So again, um, to some extent, these have been um, um, preempted by science fiction again. So I'm going back to, to Star Wars again here. You've got Mustafa, lava planet, just um, you know, probably you know, thought of before the planet was discovered itself. So again, you know, we, we, were, we were kind of beaten to it. Lava worlds, on the other end, there's water worlds. So you can imagine a whole world covered with water. Um, this, is, this is one um, Gliese um, 1214b. It's about 42 light years away, which means that if you travel at the fastest speed possible, it would still take you about 40 years to get to this world. But this world would be truly beautiful to look at. You've got this lovely blue ocean, white clouds um, in the atmosphere. Um, it, it's probably the entire surface is made of um, um, ocean. And again, um, once again, we've got uh, similar things in science fiction. We've got Camino from Star Wars again. And just if there's not Star Wars fans out there, we've got Planet Miller from the movie um, Interstellar. That was a, the whole surface was covered by a, a shallow ocean. So it's always interesting how, you know, the human imagination sort of uh, is, is, is keeping pace with um, the discoveries in science. There are some planets that are really old. I mean, some planets um, like um, this one, this is um, uh, Methusala, uh, uh, named after a character in the Bible who was um, uh, in Christian tradition was the oldest person who ever lived. So it's named that because we think it's, it's something like 12 billion years old. So given that our Earth, in fact, our solar system is only four to five billion years old, this planet here, 
was knocking around in space about three times longer than even before our solar system was formed. So this is an absolutely ancient relic in the universe. There's also even weirder things, what we call rogue planets. And rogue planets are planets that are free floating through space. They don't even go around the sun. So these are really hard to detect. Um, we've we found evidence for some of these, but you can imagine a planet that that never went that doesn't go around the sun at all. There's no sunlight. There's no there's no day. It's night all the time. These places would be absolutely freezing. Um, these planets might be created um, in a normal solar system. Um, when a solar system gets created, it's quite busy. Sometimes a planet gets kicked out of the solar system, um, and maybe this this these types of rogue planets might be these planets that are kicked out or ejected from um, solar systems, even possibly our solar system. We don't know. And then we've got exomoons as well. So um, it, we don't just have to talk about exoplanets. I mean, these planets going around other stars, they must, they've probably got moons going around them. And in our solar system, the Earth has a moon, Mars has two moons. When we get to the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, at tens and tens of moons, we're you know, approaching something like a, um, you know, 60 or 70 moons for some of our gas giants. So it stands, it's common sense that other planets will have moons going around them again. Um, so again, science fiction beat us to it. You've got Pandora in the movie Avatar here. And again, you've got going to Star Wars again, you've got Yavin 4. So again, you know, the movie makers are beating us to it really in science here. Okay, so I've, I've given sort of like a, an introduction to all the weird and wonderful planets that we see, but what we're really interested in, I mean, what, what, what the newspapers and the TV are really waiting for are, um, are new Earths, right? So can we discover planets that are similar to our Earth, can we discover planets with, with life on it? So this is, this is an example. Um, this is again, one of these, uh, it's a Gliese 581c. So this would be actually the second planet in its system because its, um, its sister planet would be called 581b. Uh, this, is, this is actually um, an, an, Earth, an Earth-sized planet. And we think the temperature on this planet is about right for liquid water. So that means that we should get excited because liquid water, life, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so how do we know whether water can exist or not on a planet? Okay, it really depends on how far it is from its sun. Okay, so here we've got a picture of um, a sun at the middle. We could think of this as our solar system. In our solar system, this would be our sun. This would be Venus. Venus is very hot. There's no life on Venus. Um, then we've got the Earth. So the Earth has water on it. The temperature's just right. And when we get out to something like Mars, uh, it's too cold and there's le less chance of being life on, on, the, on these cold planets. So we can, we can describe this kind of um, zone in the green here around a star where water can exist as liquid. Astronomers now call this the habitable zone. Habitable meaning where life can exist, but um, I prefer the old name for it. We used to call it the Goldilocks zone. Um, and the Goldilocks zone was called this after um, um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where Goldilocks had the porridge, for example, and the first porridge was too hot and the second porridge was too cold and the little bear's porridge was, was just right. So it was, it was fine to eat. In a similar way, too hot for life, too cold for life, just right. I mean, really, we're talking about water here. Um, but the press like to sensationalize this uh, uh, to be uh, you know, good for life as well. So have we found planets like this? And the answer is yes, we have. Um, in fact, these planets were discovered in 2015. 
Um, they're called the Trappist One system. Now, tr again, astronomers sometimes can be imaginative because this Trappist um, Trappist One system, um, the astronomers wanted to name it after a Belgian beer. So they, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the Trappist system. It's, it's great when you can sort of like have this power to name things when you discover them really here. Um, so the Trappist system is actually seven planets and there's seven planets that are all around um, the size of the Earth. And three of these are in fact in the habitable zone, the, the Goldilocks zone around their, around their sun. So in fact, three of these planets could have liquid water on. Um, that doesn't mean they've got life, Although as soon as this three planets in the habitable zone get out to the uh, to the um, British press, uh, it goes wild. Here we have the Daily Express headlines: shock alien discovery. Trappist one planets are habitable to extraterrestrials. Wow. Okay, so what it really means is there's you know water can exist on the surface, but you know um, any publicity is good publicity, I guess. So. A bit more. So when, when we look at the Trappist system in more detail, it's it, we, we have to sort of like temper our excitement, because when we when we look at it in detail, we actually find that all of these um, seven planets inside the Trappist system, they actually if you took that Trappist system and stuck it inside our solar system, all of these planets would actually be closer to their sun than the planet Mercury is. So they, they're very close to their sun. Having said that, the Trappist sun is very, very dim. It's not like our it's not bright like our sun. So even though they're much closer, you've still got this area where water can exist. So the Trappist system is really um, an impressive um, um, system of exoplanets, seven of them. So only one less than what we've got in our solar system. So staying with water, I mean, have we discovered water on planets? Um, in fact, yes, yes, we have. And it's a very recent discovery, um, September uh, last year, astronomers discovered um, for the first time water in the atmosphere of a of an exoplanet this is um kepler 2 18b it's about 124 light years away so it's you know in our local neighborhood although still very difficult um to get to um it takes about 33 days to go around its its sun and it's about 10 times closer to its sun than what we are okay so um how, how can we see if there's water in the atmosphere um so what we can do is as this planet moves in front of its star, we can see how the stars, um, the, the stars uh, light changes because the starlight has to pass through the planet's atmosphere before it comes to us. So um, you, you can imagine shining a torch through, um, through gas or smoke, right? And you see, you see some of the torchlight coming through, you see some of the torchlight being blocked. And if we look at the stuff, the light that gets through and we look at the stuff that gets blocked, we can actually work out what that, um, that gas in between us, or in this case, the atmosphere, the planet is, is made of. And, um, and this, is, this was done for this, um, for this planet, um, Kepler-218b. And this, this, this graph is probably looks more complicated than, than what it is. Basically, all these yellow dots are things that the astronomers measured. And then these bands, these colored bands that go through it are the models, the computer models that the astronomers um, try to explain the dots with. So if if the lines go through the dots, it means the model's quite good. OK, and then you see the different colors for these lines, various sort of combinations of water. So the blue line is well, I, um, pure, pure water here doesn't do too bad, right? blue line goes through a lot of these yellow dots. So astronomers are pretty confident that water exists um, on, this, on this planet. 
Um, so that, that's again, it's a great discovery. Water on a planet is the first step to finding um, the possibility of, of, of life. So very exciting news. And again, this is early days. There's probably, we're going to find water on loads of these planets, really. Okay, so that's where we are. What about the future? I mean, what can we do to, until now with satellites like Kepler, um, also with uh, the new ones, um, TESS that was launched in 2018. It, they're discovering thousands and thousands of exoplanets. So I think uh, two, in 2020 now, um, in May, there's about 4,200 planets that have been discovered outside our solar system. But discovering is one thing. It's a bit like stamp collecting, right? We're just collecting interesting things. What you really want to do is find out what they're made of. So this is where um, aerial comes in. Now, aerial is basically what I uh, what I spend a lot of my time working on. Now, aerial is a space mission. Um, it's a European mission. So it's a European Space Agency mission. And it's led by the UK, uh, both in terms of the science, but also the engineering to build the satellite uh, itself. And its launch date is 2028. That's a long time away, but spacecrafts take a lot of time to, um, to build and get ready for launch. So it's only about one meter in size. It's quite a small telescope and it's going to look in normal light um, and also thermal light as well, like a thermal camera does. Um, and it's going to be sent into space and left about one and a half million kilometers away uh, from the Earth to do its job. And we hope to observe about a thousand exoplanets, both rocky ones and also the gas giants as well. OK, so it's not a washing powder. Common mistake. It's not a Disney princess either. Ariel was actually named after one of the Shakespeare um, characters in um, um, Tempest. So how is Ariel built? So this is a nice little um, animation here. We've got, we've got a mirror, telescope mirror. We surround that with what we call a baffle to protect it from um, light from the sun and the earth. And then we put our cameras on the back of the telescope. So the light will come into the telescope and then go to the cameras um, on the back. And then we have to cool the telescope down. So this is like a radiator in space, the same as the radiators we find in our home really here. And then we put it on top of a communications module so we can communicate back with Earth and we can control the satellite as well. Okay, so that's, um, that's Ariel. Uh, what is it gonna do? So Ariel is um, launched in 2028 and it's going to use this transit method to discover um, exoplanets. So you can imagine a planet going around its, um, its own sun, um, hundreds of light years away. And again, once it passes in front of its sun, we can measure this little change in the brightness of, of, of the star. And what we're trying to do now, in fact, is, yeah. What we're trying to do now is as it passes in, in front of its star, we can see this tiny, tiny ring around the planet. This is the planet's atmosphere. Here. So you can imagine the sunlight going through this atmosphere of the planet on its journey to us here. So what we're doing is we're measuring the sunlight as it passes through the atmosphere. Some of that sunlight gets through, okay. Some of the sunlight doesn't get through, it gets absorbed by the atmosphere. And then we can measure by what starlight reaches us, uh, what this atmosphere is made of. And this is actually a picture not of an exoplanet, this is actually the planet Venus, in fact. Um, this was um, taken by a Japanese satellite, Hinode, as Venus passed in front of the sun. And you can see the atmosphere of Venus here, in fact, as it passed in front of the sun. And from that, astronomers were able to work out 
what the atmosphere of Venus was made of. And in fact, we found some carbon dioxide and we also found some water in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, given Venus is such a ghastly place to go to, it was, it was quite an amazing discovery um, that we actually found water in the atmosphere of Venus. So this is an example of something in our own solar system. Um, but what we, what we intend to try and do with Ariel is actually do it for exoplanets, so planets outside our solar system. So we can, we can try and do this um, uh, before Ariel was launched with, uh, with uh, um, uh, telescopes on the ground or telescopes in orbit now. And we've tried to do this for this TRAPPIST-1 planets. And again, these are the results that we see here. We see some hydrogen in the red here. We see some blue water as well. But it's pretty messy, right? I mean, you're not really convinced by this sort of um, plot here. If you did this at school, I think you know the teacher would have a right go at you, uh, really, at saying that you've actually sort of discovered things in this in this plot. So what we're trying to do with Ariel instead is actually do it much, much better. And we're going to look at about a thousand of these objects here. And in fact, um, we're, 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 we're going to look at about a thousand planets, and then we're going to do things like looking at what, how, how many planets have clouds. Um, we're going to look at the colours of these planets, um, and we're going to look at their how, how much they weigh, how dense are they, um, what they're possibly made of. And we're going to do that for a lot, a, a very large number, about a thousand. Then we're going to take a smaller number, about 500, and we can actually measure the atmospheres. We're going to see what are they actually made of. So what sort of um, things are present in the atmosphere? Is there water there? Is there carbon dioxide there? Is there any element there that might be, you know, uh, a, a clue to life in the atmosphere of that planet? And then we're going to take about 50 or 100 of them and really going to hammer this small number of planets here and um, really find out uh, what they're made of. And for example, do, in fact, does the atmosphere change with the seasons as well? So really, we're, we're going from what I, what I called stamp collecting earlier to actually finding out what all these alien worlds are going to be made of. And this is going to happen you know, from 2028 um, onwards, what we're working towards now. So the aerial mission is a big, it's a big international collaboration. It's led by the UK, but um, it's actually, uh, it's, it's got uh, collaboration from all over the world. So you've got um, all the countries in Europe. Um, there's also um, the US are also involved now in, in aerial as well. This is one of our, our group pictures taken um, a, a, couple of, a couple of years ago. Um, when we were all allowed to travel to places, um, we had the, we had actually had an aerial meeting uh, last week, virtually in Paris, where we had um, something like uh, two hundred odd people on one one Zoom meeting. Okay, so this is the future of of exoplanets, and I think I'll I'll finish up there. So thank you very much for listening. Awesome, thank you so much, Chris. That has been so interesting i cannot describe it in words and we've learned so much and i'm sure everyone has learned so many new things they didn't know about exoplanets and um space that we didn't know before um and it's, it's so nice to see that picture at the end of the collaboration of the future of um exoplanet discovery we've actually um we've actually got a few questions coming in now um so just a reminder to everyone who's um who's here to keep sending your questions in and we're going to try and answer them uh, within the next 15 minutes. Um, and we've got one from Simon. And um, he says, will the three-tier approach by Ariel occur concurrently or do 1,000 and then 500 and then finally 50 to 100? So the different phases of the different um, 
discovery of um, the, the exoplanets? Does that happen at the same time, or does it happen? Um, that's, 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 that's a really good. That's a really good question. Uh, it's, it's it's something that we're we're working on. What we're thinking about doing at the moment is we're going to do a thousand planets, and then that out of that thousand, there's going to be a subset of five hundred, and then a subset of fifty. So what we're trying to do is get quick quick measurements for that thousand. And then afterwards, we're going to go back to a subset of that and um, do 500 in more detail. And then we're going to really, as I said, we're really going to hammer down about 50 to 100 of them. So it will be done um, uh, all at the same time, slowly, slowly building up, almost like a pyramid, really, um, as, as we as we have a thousand at the bottom and then work up, work up, work up to this small number at the end. Awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. I hope that answers your question, Simon. Um, I actually had a question. As you say that 2028, which... When you think about it, it's, it's, it's quite, still quite a long way away from uh, for all of us. So what kind of stages are left now? Like you've, you've told us so much about um, the research that's gone into it, the plan of the mission. So what, what if you just break it down in the next eight years until the launch, what's that split into? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when we most of these space missions take about uh, at least 20 years you know, from from the first sort of ideas to actually um, launching them in, into space and we have to go through a selection process first of all which Ariel did it, um, it, it goes up about it goes up against something like 50 or so missions the European Space Agency then throws away most of those and keeps free and those free missions go into another study phase for about a year and at the end of that year European Space Agency chooses one and it's it's hard luck but those other two missions get nothing from that, uh, you know, you you will move forward with what's just a single mission. Okay, so once once we've got past that stage, then we have to start doing uh, um, some of the more serious design. Uh, although we're not actually building stuff at that time, and um, there's a lot of documents that have to be written and checked, and we go through various reviews. And where we are now this year, in fact, we've just gone through one of the final reviews, um, and, and we and we're working towards what we call mission adoption. Now, mission adoption is when the European Space Agency says to us, yeah, we reckon you, you know what you're doing. Uh, so, so we trust you now to, to build the thing and launch it. So from about um, at the end of this year, um, after mission adoption, um, yeah. which we have to pass, then after that, we actually start building things proper. And the first sort of steps for that are working from small bits of the um, detectors or small bits of the telescope or the cooling system and testing those and then slowly building up, building up, building up before we start to put um, everything together. So the next few years are going to be all about testing these small um, different parts of the systems. As we get closer mm -hmm. to 2028, we start putting the whole thing together, fixing the telescope onto the detectors. We have one big final check on the ground before it gets um, um, shipped out to the um, the launch site. All very exciting. Uh, another question coming from Marika, and it's about Ariel. And um, the question is: Will Ariel stay in space, um, or will it? Does it have like? Is it planned to come back down to Earth and after yeah. a few years, or what's kind of the operational life of it? Yeah. So it's it. Space, space missions, um, I, mean, I mean, sometimes, I mean, Hubble Space Telescope has been around for ages, right? And that, that's done really well. Um, for things like Ariel, 
because we're um, we're looking in ther for thermal radiation, we have to cool it. So we have like these mechanical coolers um, that we use to cool it. So it's kind of limited by their lifetime, but also limited by the cost of operations as well. So we're looking at like three to four years or something for, for aerial. Now, aerial is not going to go around the Earth like a lot of satellites. Uh, I mean, all the communication satellites, your GPS and stuff, all go around the Earth. They will eventually fall back down to Earth um, and, and burn up. Yeah. Aerial is about one and a half million kilometers away from the Earth, and it's going to a special point in space where the, the, the gravity between the Earth, the Moon and the Sun kind of balance out. It's like an imaginary balance point in space. We call it the, um, the L2 point. Um, so, in fact, it, it's, it won't go around the Earth, therefore it, it won't be able to be brought back to Earth unless someone goes and gets it, and it, it certainly won't fall back to Earth. Fair enough. I hope that answers your question, Marika. And um, I mean, it's um, it's required quite a lot of courage for the entire team to just send this thing through and not expect to ever see it again after spending so long and dedicating um, a big portion of your careers, I imagine, on this one satellite that you're not, just never going to see it again. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't we don't see it, but we see the data that it's going to take. <laughs> so so you know, it's it's a fair enough swap, and and we it's true that people's careers, uh, you know, are poured into these missions, and and you've got this this single point failure times. I mean, you've got the launch, where and and rockets do blow up on the launch pad, right? You know, it's not that unusual. So you've got this point where everyone's holding their breath for the launch, hoping that it it's going to take off properly and get itself into space once it's in space you've got the second sort of single point failure again where we're all holding our breath when we we sort of like pop the top of the um of the telescope and um and actually have what we call first light which is yeah. the first um picture that we will take and again there's been space missions in the past hubble space telescope being one of them right where the first the first image that was taken was um was was not really what we were expecting and we had to go and fix that so yeah, yeah so it's it's um it th th there's a lot of emotional um effort that goes into these missions as well yes awesome yeah i mean i do hope it all goes well but we've got another question coming in from uh, one of our youtube viewers uh jp juice from youtube and um, the question is when do you think we will have the technology to see the surfaces of exoplanets without obviously necessarily having to go there. So we we can see we can see the some we can see some exoplanets now. I mean they're a bit blurry, but we can yeah. directly image image them now. We won't see the surfaces so easily because the atmospheres are going to be in 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 the way for a lot of these these um, these objects. Aerial won't be powerful enough to do it. Um, there are some very, very big telescopes um, that are being planned, both on the Earth, um, things like telescopes that are 30 meters across on the Earth, and also some very, very big um, spacecraft that are being planned um, that, again, may be um, you know, tens, tens meters um, of size in, in space. So those are the things, those massive uh, big mirror dishes that those are things that are going to give us a better chance of imaging um, exoplanets um the other one that will do some work towards this is the james webb telescope which is the yeah. successor to hubble um and that's a big uh, six six and a half meter telescope that will be able to image exoplanets as well so we are getting there but we won't be able to see um you know country outlines and things for a fair time <laughs> with, with these own satellites 
Awesome. I hope that answers your question. Uh, we've got another interesting question coming in from Fairly Holding, um, and she asks the we were talking about it at the start. How will that be situated? Okay, so 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 the square kilometer A. Um, I guess for those people who weren't who weren't here at the start, the square kilometer A is going to be the biggest radio telescope ever constructed by um, by humankind. In fact, it's going to be the biggest ever science facility that's ever been built. Um, it's so big that it's actually half of it's being built in Australia, um, in the desert in Australia, and the other half is being built in the in the desert in in South Africa in the in the Karoo. So you've got one half in, or we've got one half the telescope in Australia, one half in South Africa, and the headquarters is in sunny Manchester, in the UK. So it's a free, it's a free, um, it's free, it's a free location um, project. Wow. Oh, okay. So I hope, I hope that answers your question, Freddie. And we had a question coming a couple of minutes ago from Ojas Patil. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I think you've already answered it, but it's how many years is Ariel going to work? Expected by you. Personally, <laughs> well, I'm expecting at least ten years. <laughs> um, I mean, it's 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 uh, it, it, it it's going to be about three and a half years or so, um, four years. I mean, it it, it all depends on it, it depends on two things. It, it depends on the, the the health of the spacecraft, especially the cooling uh, that we had the coolers we have, and it also depends on um, uh, getting enough money to fund um, operations beyond what we said we were going to do. Um, yeah. so, so often the, these missions, it's not unusual for these missions to have a, a, an extension of, of, uh, of, of a couple of years, for example, uh, as long as everything's working properly. Yeah, well, um, I think we all wish you the best of luck with um, all of your work for the aerial mission. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up now. Um, but, oh, just a final question coming in from Craig. Uh, just saying that was a fascinating thought, so thanks very much for presenting to us today. I think we all feel the same that we've learned so much about exoplanets that we didn't know before. Um, I'm really sorry if we haven't been able to answer your question. Um, and anything you want to say, Chris? Um, I was just um, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, do you know? Do keep your eye on on the news and stuff for these new planets being discovered because we're living in a very very um, special age, almost like a golden age of of exoplanets and and. You know, we're, we're getting we're getting towards this this point now where we're where we're finding water on other planets and inside our solar system you know a betting person might might put might put a bet on finding life in the next decade or so inside our solar system so yeah keep your ear, ear to the ground thank you for listening to the space store podcast you can tune in live to our space talks and be part of the q and a every thursday at 7 p.m on youtube.com forward slash space door live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one, two, and three of the space talk and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website, spacetour.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.